Okay, Erev everyone. We are starting the fifth book of the Torah. Sefer Dvorim, Parshas Dvorim. And let's just read the first couple psukim. Now usually if you uh, want to tell people directions, let's say you want to tell a person where... Uh, Labriu West, West, West uh, Restaurant is, <laughs> that I went to yesterday with my grandchildren. Oh, that was oh, nice. Okay, yeah. so you might give the address on Center Street. You may say, well, it's near Krasinski's. That's right. Uh, you might say it's uh, between. It's on Center Street and uh, next to I can't I can't pronounce the street. Have an I used to you know, be whatever. You know, you give certain directions, but uh, you can maybe give the GPS coordinates, but you wouldn't give nine different descriptions of the directions. I don't think so. So in this week's parsha, we seem to have this. As the parsha begins, These are the words that Moshe spoke to the Jewish people. Now let's see the descriptions. On the other side of the Jordan. I don't know how helpful that is. In the wilderness. Concerning the Arava. Mol Suf. Opposite the Sea of Reeds, Bain Paran, between the desert of Paran, Ubain Tofel, and between Tofel, Vilavan and Lavan, and the commentaries say they know of no such places. Vachatzeros, Echatzeros, Vidizahov, and Dizahov. It's a lot of descriptions. Yeah. Of the, places, but the Jordan and the Sea of Reeds are two different sides and of none the of them Yes, yes, the, the Sea of Reeds and a lot of these places are not even next to each other. So what's going on over here? So, therefore, Rashi gives us the premier answer, and um, where is the Rashi over here? Oh. So first Rashi says, since these are words of rebuke, Moshe lists various places where the Jewish people angered HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Therefore, it only gives a hint in order to show honor for the Jewish people. So these aren't really places. Okay, that is one interpretation. What I want to spend today on is... Uh, going through inside Shmuel's favorite uh, commentary. You may have to share the, the Or HaChaim HaKadosh. The Or HaChaim HaKadosh. The Or HaChaim lived in the uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, was a contemporary of the Baal Shem Tov. And uh, not that many people are called Hakadosh, holy people. Very few people in our of our rabbis are called Hakadosh. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was called Rabbeinu Hakadosh. Uh, you have the Shalom Hakadosh, but not very many others are Hakadosh. And uh, he gives a fascinating interpretation 
And this is something I think it, it's not very difficult at all, but I think it gives us some um, entranceway into the nine days, which begin tomorrow night. And you'll see why that gives us this entranceway and will give us some practical ways of preparing for Tisha B'Av. So all I'm going to do is I brought you the Hebrew and the English, and uh, we'll just explain what he says, and then we'll add... Uh, our own color commentary, as it were. So, the Orachim says like this. So you can, I'm going to read the Hebrew, you could look at the English. Va'amru, and it says, Bamidbar, Barava, in the desert, in the Arava. Rabbaseinu Dorsu, the rabbis uh, in the Sifri says, Bamidbar. He was rebuking them for what they did in the desert, and that's what Rashi brings. If we're already looking at Ramazim, if the simple shot is difficult to understand, and the simple interpretation has to be by way of hint, so let's do it in another way. And that is, keep a mikra muat in a very small amount of words. Lamad Moshe Klolos Yiras Hashem Umidos Hagunos. Moshe taught us the generalities of fear of Hashem and proper character. Hatshrichim lahochi b'Torah Hashem that is necessary for those who walk in the Torah of Hashem. Hemidos tisha, and these are nine attributes. Now, why the nine is so inviting is because we're starting the nine days. So, therefore, what we could really use this Orachim Hakadosh is to spend every day of the nine days working on one of the things that he is talking about. So that's why I find it to be a very um, useful piece of Torah Relax. where you can just take this and say, okay, this is what I'm going to work on. Chodesh is Wednesday. This is what I'm going to work on on Wednesday. This is what I'm going to work on on Thursday straight through till Tisha B'Av. Okay, so we'll do one at a time. That's already the whole gist of the class. Now we just have to uh, assimilate the nine ideas and uh, see why they're important and to um, bring, bring them out with some stories. And I'll, I'll mention a number of stories of the Orachim HaKadosh because it's, it's a, the, the Talmud says it's very good for people who emulate the teachings that they teach, that they really emulate what those characteristics are. And we have a number of stories to share with the Orachim HaKadosh. So let's start with the first word. The first word in the Pasuk was Be'ever. That was the first word, again, back into the Parsha. The very first word was Be'ever Hayardeh. So he says, Shahaya Lokeach. So you see, Ho'alef, one, you're going to have nine all the way down. Ho'alef Shahaya Lokeach Midoso Shalavram. First of all, Moshe takes the attribute of Avram. Dixiv, as it says, regarding Avram, he's called Avram Ha-Ivri. Avram is the Ivri. So what does it mean he was the Ivri? We'll see in a minute. V'hum Asheramas, and this is the hint, Ba'amra Ba'ever, on the other side. Ever is the same as word Ivri. Now, we know that when Avram was called the Ivri, the first time, Rashi gives two interpretations, and one of them is that Avram was on one side of the world, and everybody else was on the other side of the world. 
Or as well, Avram was somebody who was a person who moved about and didn't stay in one place. So we already could see the first attribute is that you have to be willing to, if you think something is correct, even though everybody else thinks it's not so, you have to be willing to stay your game, uh, stay your course, because that's what you feel is important. Now, if you really think about it, what was it that Avram really stood on one side against everybody else? So a lot of people will say, well, monotheism. Well, monotheism is one side against wild worship. But if you really think about it, there's a lot more than that. And as Esther says, it's chesed. What, what do I mean by that? Is that a, a, a world that's idolatrous doesn't know about chesed. Chesed did not exist before Avram Because the idol worship didn't lend itself for chesed. Self-serving. Yes, it's self-serving. By Moshe believing in an ethical monotheism and believing that there's a God, and he understood that God Olam Chesed Yibana, he built the world with Chesed. So he understand, and this was a tremendous upheaval to society to preach a concept of Chesed and love to other people. This was something that did not exist in the world. And therefore, the first uh, day of the nine days, we're suggesting, the Erechaim doesn't saying it, but, it, but it's, this is the Parsha that you always read when you bless the moon of the month of Av. Always, it's always. Always, always before Tisha B'Av. Yes, it's okay. always, almost, it's always either right before, right after the nine days. So it makes a lot of sense that that should be the first day. Again, the Orchaim does not say you should do a day for each one, but it just seems to make sense. He's, why did he give nine things and his nine days before? So, uh, so, re- so really the first thing we have to do when we're trying to Correct all the things that led to the destruction of the base of Migdash is to choose a path of love to yourself and to others. Okay, so it's interesting. There was a very successful secular pilot in Israel. Maybe you heard of him. His name was Moshe Tzur. Guess didn't hear of him. He was not in the 67 war. He was a very successful pilot. Anyway, he was a secular person. He became a Balchuva, became a Lubavitch Chosid. Uh, one time he met with the Lubavitch Rebbe, and the Lubavitch Rebbe asked him, he said, what are you doing for the Jewish community? Now, this fellow, you know, he was out of the army, and he wanted to make Parnassah. And uh, so the Rebbe said, you know, you got to worry about the commandment of loving your neighbor like yourself. So the Rebbe asked him a question. He said, we know that generally speaking, the right side is the stronger side, is the spiritual side. So he asked a very simple question. Why is the heart of a human being on the left side? Right, if everything is good on the right side, the side that represents kindness, we put our tefillin on the right hand, we shake hands with the right hand, we hold a Torah scroll on our right side. So why is the heart? So why is the heart on the left? Because he's the trainer. The heart is the trainer of you. No, we put our tefillin on with the right hand. I meant put on with the right hand. Okay, we shake hands with the right. The right hand is the. 
So the right side, the heart's on the right side. So the Rebbe said, because when you face another Jew, your heart is opposite his right side and his right hand. And the Rebbe said, your heart beats not for you, but for others. For the fellow whom you must love as yourself. And this Moshe Tzur understood the message now of Ahavta Love your neighbor like yourself. Make your heart beat for others. Make your life centered on the needs of others. And when you do that, then your heart is on your right side. And that changed this fellow to become a full Balchuva, opened up, was instrumental in opening up many yeshivas, etc., etc. Okay, so, so as I was preparing today, so I was looking around and there's a lot of interesting stories about the Orachayim HaKadosh, incredible stories. And, or, and again, you could see this is all his life. The Orachayim, first of all, he was a genius in Kabbalah, in Torah, there was like no question about that. But he was very particular about Hachnasas Orchim, to have guests. And it was one era of Pesach where it just turned out he didn't have any guests. So the Orachayim sends a messenger to look around for guests. So, uh, so the messenger is looking. It's very hard to find a guest on Erev Pesach. So the messenger is desperate. So he goes to the cemetery. And he's passing by the cemetery. He notices in the corner of the cemetery, there's a person who's crying bitterly. Now, most people are not at the cemetery on Erev Pesach crying bitterly. So, uh, and when the messenger said, why are you crying? The guy says, I want to die. So the messenger said, oh, this must be the Pesach guest. So the messenger runs to the house of the Rebbe and he tells him the story. And Orachayim HaKadosh himself runs to the Pesach forest and asks the fellow to tell him what his troubles are. So the guy doesn't want to tell him the the troubles until the Rebbe says, listen, you'll tell me troubles. I promise you I, I, I will help you. He's got to remember the Orachayim HaKadosh was a big miracle worker. Big, big miracle work. So, guy says, listen, I'm so-and-so from the city of Sali. And I left my family, my wife, everyone for business. I, was, I went away very far away. I was very successful. And after 10 hard years, I wanted to return with all the money that I made and to finally give my family what they deserve. I took all the money and bought precious jewels and I put them all in a small lockbox. And I took a boat to come all the way back to home. Well, when the boat arrived in the port near my home, as I was going off the boat, I was going, you know, those little, uh, what do you call it? The boats, small Not boat. the boats, boat. no, Back. the plank, the plank. When you go from the plank, from the boat to the ground, you know, it's a little bit shaky, they're not, you know, exactly terra firma. And he stumbled a little bit, and the box fell, ooh, down, 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 very deep, deep down. And also, one of my shoes fell off my foot, down, 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 and that's it. At that point, I just wanted to jump in and end my life. But people kept me back from killing myself. So now I'm here. And instantly, I become a pauper. And he keeps crying. So Rechaim feels very bad. Rechaim looks up to Shemayim 
and he gets a spirit of Hashem. So he tells guys all air of Pesach. He says, "Listen, show me the place where it fell. Take me to the riverbank." So they go to the whatever the river, the ocean, wherever it was, and the guys going right where the plank was is right here, like hundred feet feet down, whatever. So the Orachaim Hakadosh, he uh, he uh, is able to bring out the uh, angel of the sea by using mystical names of Hashem. And all of a sudden, everything that had fallen to the bottom of the sea goes up, including the jewelry box, the guy's shoe, and the, the Orachim Kodesh, take only what's yours. There's all kinds of other treasures. Take only what's yours. He takes the box, he takes the shoe. He thanks the Rebbe so much that he brought, Mama saved his life and now they're going back for the Seder. Now, Mamish Man Cheiruseinu. And while they're walking, the man is telling the Orachim HaKadosh all the things that happened to him, that he was married to his wife, that he lost all his money, and if, if, if he had to go away, and all these things. And when he came back, you know, with all the money, and he tries to come back home, even without the money, his wife wasn't there. He doesn't know where she is. And he tells the, the rabbi her name. The rabbi says, oh, that's who it is. Okay, then I don't think you have to worry about it. Because why? Because this woman, when she left, she became a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a maid for the Orachaim HaKadosh. Wow. So the Orachaim HaKadosh said, see, mitzvah, goreris mitzvah, since I wanted to do hachnosis orchim with you, now even you got back your wife, you got back your money and everything. So this is the Orachaim HaKadosh. So therefore, the very first thing as Jews we have to learn, the first thing we have to work on is being like Avram Avinu, to be a, the one who is kind to others, which l- lately in this world, most of the people in the world are not kind anymore. And uh, therefore, we have to really work on making sure our heart is focused to others. And that's the kindness we should work on. No coincidence as well, as we mentioned in the Arab Shabbos Drush last week, that the Yortzeit on the Rosh Chodesh Av is that of Aaron HaKohen, who was Oev Shalom Rodev Shalom. So that clearly is what the first Mita is. That first uh, day should be spent on really focusing on, on trying to find ways to show your love to other people. So that's Aleph. Now, of course, you have to remember, just as we're talking about the Jews left the desert, which is ultimately finally leaving Egypt, and that whole Sefer Dvarim is preparing us to go to Eretz Yisrael, and that is our redemption. So certainly, as we're starting Sefer Dvarim in the nine days, the whole point is we're trying to bring ourselves to a state of redemption. So the state of redemption can only happen when our midos are in redeemed order. And therefore, the first day, you should be working on chesed. Okay, that's point number one. Base. What does Orachim say? Shiyia mardus belibo tamit. Okay, Mardus is not an easy word to tra- to translate. It, it literally would mean like to to beat one's own heart. In other words, to be, Marcus Mardus. Is- well, sort of like that. It's like 
to uh, give yourself rebuke. Okay, or just like word mered means a re, a re, to rebel, so you're like rebelling against yourself, you're rebelling against your Yetzirah. Uh-huh. Okay, as the Gemara Bracha says, Tova Mardus Achas Beliba Shaladam, better one act of rebuke in one's own heart to himself, it's better than Mea Malkias, a hundred lashes. <laughs> and that's what's hinted to in the next word, the word Yardain. Yardain is of similar words, Reish Dalid, root. Yorad is to go down, but Yared is also to lash someone, to give someone lashes. So, therefore, what he's saying is better to lash yourself than to have others lash you, which really means never make the mistake between power and influence. Don't make the mistake between coercion and inner awareness. In other words, we can force people to do things, but it's not gonna change them. You can lash someone 100 times, you can beat them into submission, but it's not gonna change them. Better one self-flatulation, so to speak, one moment of authentic inner awareness is more effective than so many lashes that are coming from outside of the person, okay? And that really means to truly rule over one's Yetzirah. That's the, the second point, and that's what Yardane is hinting to. So it would seem that uh, the first one really is discussing the Mita of Chesed, and the second one is Kfura. I didn't have time, I was trying to figure out if it fits to all the nine spheros and all so many other issues, but. I, didn't have enough time to work on all that. But so, so that's the second one. So the first day you're working on chesed, and the second day you're working of having a moment of self-awareness where you're trying to look at yourself and to find something that is not in order that needs to get repaired. And really, that's probably the biggest chesed you could do for yourself is to be able to do that. Okay, number three is, now three and four will go together. Number three is midos ha'anova. The attribute of humility. Now, what's the hint to that? As it says, the olam yasim adam atzma kamidbar. A person should always make himself like a desert. And look at what I wrote on Parshish Yisro when it says, and right before receiving the Torah, it says they left Rafidim, and it also says they were in the midbar. And what uh, the hints he said about that? So, the Orchaim Hakadosh in Parshish Yisro says. That in order to prepare for Matan Torah, the Jewish people had to be modest and humble. As the Talmud says, that only people who are humble can be certain that they will not forget their Torah. And humility has to be something, if you're not humble, how can you internalize the messages of the Torah? A person can say, I don't agree with what it says in the Torah. And therefore the hint to that is the word Bamidbor, in the desert. Because the desert is has nothing to boast about. There's nothing there. It's completely raw. It's hefker. So when you're acting like a midbor, so you have to, it brings out feelings of modesty. And you have to have authentic modesty, as we will see as it parallels number four. Now, again, another story with Orachayim HaKadosh. Um, so although he, he, in general rule, he never would bow to people, but he was a very humble and patient person. 
So he once was involved in a din Torah. And he ruled that a particular defendant was liable for damages. So when the defendant heard the ruling, he flew into a rage and starts insulting the Rav, starting to impugn his honesty. And Orachim HaKadosh, he said quietly, he didn't get angry, he didn't answer the man. And later on, his students were shocked and said, Rabbeinu, where is the, 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 the tough spirit that you're famous for? Like, why didn't you answer him back? So Rav Chaim said, in your opinion, what should I have done? What should I have done? What do you think I should have done? He said, well, we feel this man deserved to be condemned and driven out of the house and put him in cheyrim, put a ban on him until he apologizes. So Rav Chaim laughed and says, and maybe you should consider this. The man's been found guilty and his soul is bitter because of it. Nevertheless, if I don't do anything, everyone's going to understand why he is insulting me and they won't suspect me of anything. They fully believe that I've judged the case fairly and that's, let's just leave it like that. But what's going to happen if I put him under a ban? What will people then think? If I did that, if I angrily punished him for insulting me in his time of bitterness, then people would say, you know, maybe the guy was right. Why do you have to put a ban on him? So, in other words, he's getting him back because he's trying to shut him down. So he said, well, just let it go. So again, this idea of modesty is, is so critical if you want to be able to absorb the message of Torah. And as we mentioned uh, at Shalashus, being able to hear rebuke and all these things, you, if, you're, if you're not modest, you're not going to be able to manage to do that. But there is a great danger in modesty. So now you see how these words are all telling us Be'ever hayardein bamidbor. So it's, it's a mnemonic here. Ever, like Avram was the Ivri, the first one, Chesed. Hayardein is to be rodeh, to, to punish, self afflict oneself, and then be like a midbor, to be humble, and, uh, and, and in so many ways. If you're humble, you can. You can admit your mistakes and things like that, which is something we all have to be working on in the nine days to find out what areas, once I have this moment of self-awareness, I need the humility to uh, accept the fact that uh, I have to make certain changes. However, if you do that, you're running into the possibility of it having a very negative effect. So now we go to number Dalit. So he says, The humility we speak about should have a positive nature. It shouldn't be um, of a, a negative nature, a derogatory fashion, like the Rambam says in Hilchus Deus. In other words, this should not bring the person to despair. There's, there's a fine line between humility and despair. And he continues, and another condition of this humility is we shouldn't use it to distance ourselves from rebuking others that are sinning. If you see someone is transgressing the laws of Hashem, we could have a false humility and says, me ani, who am I? That I should rebuke other people that are greater than me. But rather, you have to give him rebuke because of the responsibility, it's called arevus. Arevus means responsibility. 
And here is the fourth word of the places, Bo'arava. The word Arava, which includes two things. That one thing, you should have humility, but a pleasant type of humility. And also to have the type of humility that you feel responsible and you have to be able to speak up and, and uh, criticize where criticism is supposed to happen. So therefore, humility must not allow you to shirk responsibility. So this word is, is hinted in the word arava, which is like you have the word arev. La arev is to mix things. Something is arev, it's very sweet. So what does that mean? Since all Jews are mixed together with each other, they have to be able to feel the sweetness of all Jews, and therefore you have to take responsibility. Now, what is true humility? True anava doesn't mean to say, I'm a nobody. You know, it's a very wrong way. When people praise you, how are you supposed to respond to praise? The wrong way is to say, oh, it really wasn't anything. That's a lie, because what you did was something very special. So you shouldn't say it wasn't anything. Thank you. You have to say, listen, I know, I know that I was able to do this very well because Hashem gave that power to me. So you have to know your virtues and you have to know that those virtues come because Hashem gave them to you. Yeah. The negative part of anava is what we call in Hebrew shiflut, where you feel you're worthless. And if you really have the proper humility, it means you'll stand up against evil. And you know what the famous word they say, evil doesn't flourish because of evil people. Evil flourishes when good people don't respond. That's a big yisod. And, and, and that's what the liberals in Canada understand. They understand that Canadians generally don't respond. So when people, they criticize what Trudeau does and all these things that all the liberals do, he's not the guilty guy. It's the people that stand up for it. You know, who don't stand yeah, people don't stand up against it, yeah, and therefore you see what protest. he did when the when the truckers were protesting, he acted like a tyrant, and and unfortunately, so many Canadians, you know, played along and they didn't protest as they should have. Now you see what kind of problems you have. You have a prime minister who lets tens and thousands of undocumented immigrants go in. And he takes the pictures, I'm letting them all in. He says, okay, Toronto, you'll pay a half a billion dollars to take care of them. Meanwhile, I got all the credit. And it's because they let him do it. You have to have the comments, you have to really, you have to protest, you have to say no such thing. But, but that, that's the issue over here. And therefore, on the one hand, you have to be modest. If you're not humble, you're not gonna be able to learn from anything. You won't be able to ex accept any rebuke but there has to be a sweetness in that humility where you don't feel like you're a nothing and therefore you can even stand up against things that are not proper. Again, another good example of this was uh, in, uh, in Morocco where the Orachim HaKadosh was and there was a great plague that broke out amongst the cattle. And as a result, the Jewish people, when they slaughtered the animals, they found all the animals to be treif. Because of the plague. When they checked them, they inspected they're not good. Only one calf was kosher minamahadrim without any question. And what was that one? It was the one slaughtered specifically for the Orachim Hakkot. Wow. 
That's not the wow yet. <laughs> now, now what happened is when when one of the wealthy men in the city heard about this, and the only kosher meat you can get is by the Orachim, he rushed to the to Orachim's house, hoping to get some meat in honor of Shabbos, and he's willing to pay a lot of money for it. But the Orachim refused, and he says, "This is not a butcher shop. The meat is reserved for the poor Torah scholars in our city." And he says every week, his custom was to shecht one animal for himself to distribute to all the poor Torah scholars for the Shabbos. So while they were speaking, one of Reb Chaim's uh, customers walks in and the rich man is upset. He says, huh? You call this one a Talmud Chacham? Now, Dora Chaim ignored the comment and gave the scholar his portion. Uh, the rich man realized he's not going to get anywhere and he stalked out in anger. That night, Dorachayim had a dream in which he was, he was told that in Shemayim, since he did not protest against the embarrassment of a Talmud Chacham, he has to go into a self-imposed exile for a full year. Wow. 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 So he, he, I guess from that story, he understood that maybe he was a little bit too humble in that particular case. So immediately Reb Chaim packed up his few belongings, set on a long, difficult journey, going from one town and village to another, making sure not to sleep two nights in the same place. He would often sleep hungry. He accepted the pain as a punishment. Okay, now that, that's the main part, but it's a good next part to the story to mention as well. So, uh, so one Friday, many months later, the Orachim finds himself in the outskirts of a city. He sits down on a stone to rest his body, and he reflects on the first pasuk in Parshas Bechukosai. Simayim Bechukosai. Okay, for a little while. When, that, when he continued walking towards the city, he's deep in thought and he's attached to Hashem. Well, that's what he's doing. 42 original explanations to the Pasuk occurred to him. And if you look in the Orachayim HaKadosh in B'chukosa, you'll see 42 explanations. So when he arrives in the shul, he goes directly to the local shul. Nobody knows who he is. The Shamish invites him to his house for Shabbos. At the end of the meal, the Shamish told his guest, the custom is to join the meal at the house of the rabbi and uh, the rabbi says certain divrei uh, Torah. Yeah. So when the time came and all the eyes turned towards the head of the table, the rabbi was still sitting quietly, and that rabbi was also a holy man, and he's like in a trance-like state. So after a few more moments, he rouses himself and begins to speak, and he gave 14 brilliant explanations of the first pasuk in Parshas Pechukosai. And then he concluded that these explanations I just heard in heaven in the name of the Holy Tzaddik, Reb Chaim Ben Atar, the Orachayim HaKadosh. <laughs> now, the Orachayim is in the room and nobody knows it's Orachayim. So the rabbi said, the Holy Tzaddik, Rabbeinu Moreinu, Rabbeinu Chaim Ben Atar. So what does the Orachayim say? 
Mr. Chaim Ben Atar. That's not 14, there's no, more. No, not Sadiq. Not Sadiq. And then he was yelling at him, how he dared to say He says, Mr. Chaim. Everyone turns to say, the chutzpah to the side of the Orma Chaim. And they wanted to punish him. But the Shamish felt responsible for bringing the guest. He just said, you know, leave the poor man alone. Okay, so therefore, that was at the Friday meal. Then the customers go to the rabbi for the Shabbos day meal. So the rabbi expounds another 14 interpretations that were brought to him from the Or HaChaim. And this again came from the holy tzaddik, the Rab Chaim Ben Atar. And again, this guest says, Mr. Chaim Ben Atar. Whoa, they're really getting irritated at this guy. Now, by the third meal already, the Shamish warns the guests, listen, no more monkey business over here. But, of course, the rabbi comes out of his trance. He says, I have 14 more interpretations. That's the 42. 42. From the holy Reb Chaim Ben Atar. And, of course, he says, Mr. Chaim Ben Atar. That was it. They're not going to take this anymore. They decided to lock up the disrespectful guest in a room until after Shabbos for the terrible thing he did. Okay, but that night a sudden strong storm sweeps through the city causing much damage and the townspeople are frantically rushing to the rabbi of the city for his prayers and blessing and the rabbi told him he had just been informed from heaven that Gehenim closes on Shabbos and it doesn't reopen on Motzi Shabbos until the Or HaChaim says Havdalah to enter the new week. (laughs) And the Tzadik could not make Havdalah because he's currently locked in the room, which is the cause of the storm. So people realize, whoop-whoop, they made a little mistake. But anyway, it's a good story. So you see see how how modest he was, obviously, and he realized that maybe he had too much modesty for not stepping up against the wealthy man about the meat, but he still continued to show modesty where he should. So interesting stories. So that's the third and the fourth is that modesty, and yet it has to be a sweetness of humility being a guarantor. So again, so as you go from the third to the fourth day to show your modesty, to be able to admit that maybe you don't know everything, but yet to not have such an, a modesty that you're so humble, that you're not taking responsibility for what other people are doing, and you have to stand up for what really uh, people believe in. You know, my wife, uh, we were going for a walk today before it rained on us, and uh, she was telling me she went to the bank, and uh, she went to the TD Bank, and uh, you know, in the TD Bank, you always wait in line. That's um, pretty much. So you're waiting in line, so they got these screens with images flashing by. So they show you some images, you know, of bank stuff. And then they show you an image of uh, two, uh, two guys uh, kissing each other and, you know, and, and all this uh, 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 rainbow flags and all this stuff. So as, as she leaves, uh, she's not very pleased with that. So she, uh, when you leave, they, they have by the door, they have this thing if you want to give any feedback. So he said, this time I'm taking it, and I'm going to write a really 
Yes. Not nice letter. Why? Why do you have to sexualize the banking industry? You know, you want to serve these people, yes, but you have to show picture of this. And the truth is, we we really should be a little bit more um, vocal about it. You know, somebody um, was telling me in Hamilton there was a, uh, a I think a Gioras or a Balashchuva. She was. Um, went to a place where I think you get the manicure, pedicure place, whatever, and in the store they have a picture on the storefront, a very revealing picture. So the lady comes in and says, why do you have to have a revealing picture just because you're giving manicure, pedicure? So I really don't like it. And they changed it. So, you know, I think people have to realize that, that, sometimes, that sometimes, sometimes you have to speak up. You know, because we don't say things that are really not proper. You know, uh, when uh, TTC was in, on Bathurst Street, remember, a couple years ago, it was on Bathurst Street. Right there's a bus stop, right in front of the front door of the school. And they had a, a sign up there which was very immodest. So the principal's told them, please take it down. And they did. So I think we have to realize that um, the world is becoming the way it is because we're not, we're being too humble. Maybe we should uh, at work and in certain places say, no, I don't, I don't want to be forced into doing this and I don't believe this is something that's proper. So that's something we have to think about. That's the fourth thing. Okay, number five. Goes on the words, mul suf. Opposite the suf. So what is that telling us? Maimer hatana. This is what it says in Pirkei Avos. He stakel Take a look at three things, and you'll never come into the grips of sin. And what are they? Where did you come from? Where are you going to? And before you're going to give a din and a cheshbon. So what is that really meaning? And also it says another Mishnah shuv yomechad lifnei do tshuva one day before you die. Aye, you don't know what day you're going to die. That's right, so every day should be with tshuva. So what does that mean? A person always needs to know that he's going to have a day of death. And there is always, as they say, a deadline. And that is hinted in the words mul suf. Opposite, suf means yam suf. But suf also sof, end. You should always be facing person should always have before his eyes to know there's going to be a time where you're not going to be forever. So that's another important... Now, it, it's not meant to be a morose idea. But really, it's meant for a person to understand exactly what your life is. In other words, we have to make peace with our mortality. And we all have to be aware of the fact that we will not live forever. You know, they say a story with the Tzemach Tzedek. After Sukkot, he had not yet taken down his Sukkah. And it was Shabbos after Sukkot. So, uh, and the, the Sukkah went, opened up into his house, and the house was opened into the study of the Tzemach Tzedek. So the Tzemach Tzedek was in his room, and it's uh, on Shabbos, and he's saying to Hillam, and the uh, Chassid wanted to eavesdrop. How do you eavesdrop? So what did he do? He climbed on top of the sukkah, and on top of the schach, and now he looks down, and he could hear what the Rebbe is doing. And the Rebbe is saying, Tehillim, 
and he's saying Psalm 39, where David Amel says, Hodieni Hashem Kitsi. Hashem, let me know when my end is going to be. Umidas Yomai, in the length of my days. Mahi What's it going to be that my life is going to end? But he said it with like such a Yom Kippur niggin. You know, you can imagine like the, a very heartfelt Yom Kippur niggin. And uh, he's doing that. The Rebetzin is going into the sukkah face to clear out some other things. She knows kind of cloudy up on the sukkah. <laughs> And she says, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Then she says to him, did you never hear a Jew say Tehillim before? In other words, she thought it was the normal way to say Tehillim. You know, like, like to say, you know, like a real young Kipper nigga. He says, that's the way you're supposed to say this. In other words, that uh, the idea is, you know, not to be a pessimist to fear death, but to face the reality of your life so you can live your life in line with reality. And uh, well, that's why every day we say, You're going to take it away from me. So how is a Jew supposed to look at death? So I heard a really good marshal about this. The word we should use substitute for death is unplugged. Okay, so it's not a question of life after death, but unplugged. And here's the marshal. Let's say you have electricity. And the electricity, you take the plug of the refrigerator and all your utensils in your kitchen, you plug it in. Now the electricity infuses the ability for the utensil to work. Okay, now, when you take the plug out, did the electricity die? No, no. It didn't die, but it no longer manifests. Okay, the, uh, the appliance, the, can, 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 can the appliance exist without the electricity? Well, no, it needs the electricity, but when the appliance is unplugged, is the electricity dead? <laughs> the electricity's not dead. So you have a body, that's the appliance. You have a neshama, that's the electricity. The electricity is plugged in to the body. So what happens when you die? We just unplug the soul, but the soul's still around. The soul is the divine will that's in the person. And that's what we say, Elokai, Nishamash and Asatabi, it's holy, it's this. And one day you're gonna take it away, but then but then again, but you're gonna bring it back to me. It's gonna get replugged. Okay? And, there, and therefore, we have to really this is such a critical point in understanding reality. All the things we do in life is because we don't really analyze that, you know, just like at work, there is a concept called a deadline. Now, why at work do they give you deadlines? To get it done. To get it done. What if there's no deadline? Right? No deadline. It doesn't get done. Right? And that's why the, the younger snowflake generation, they're having all kinds of meltdowns. They don't know, how, what do you mean? I have to have the pressure of a deadline? I can't do that. That's too hard. I can't work. I quit. Really bad when the snowflake melts down. Yes. But, it, but, but the point is, they just don't, 
But a deadline is the greatest thing in the world. Like, I have a deadline. The deadline was by 8 o'clock tonight, I have to have a shear. So you know what? That means I'm already thinking about it yesterday. I'm looking around yesterday. And this morning I'm looking around. And I'm spending hours because I know I can't come into this room. I'm not going to send an email saying class is canceled because I haven't been able to prepare it. You know, and that's, you, you have to give yourself a lot of deadlines in life. So now, the fact that, thank God, we have deadlines. If we would live forever, we'd never get anything done. So we have a deadline. We don't know exactly know when the deadline is. But one thing we know for sure, you're not going to get a lot past 100. You know, in the best scenario. You're not you, going to get much done past 100. Yeah, you're not going to get much done past 100. Your productivity, generally speaking, uh, Starts to go down uh, at, at, a at a certain point in age, but nobody makes it to 120. Let's forget about this 126. Do you know any? The oldest person I knew went till 106. I don't know more than that, you know. And many of those that are, like you said, they're like dead already. They, they can't do much. Yeah. Okay, but I'm saying, but I'm not counting on it. I'm not counting on it. And, you know, at a certain age, you do, you're going to slow down. Earl Nussbaum's grandma, whatever. Ah, yeah, right. Yeah, but anyway, but the point is to realize, to realize how important it is that you have to be mole sof. You have to realize your life will end. And to realize that's not bad. As a matter of fact, that's really good. Because if your life ends and then the deadline comes, so what do you have to show for the deadline? What do you have to show? And that's going to, and you have to understand that idea. And I think in, in the nine days where we really talk a lot about people dying in the nine days, and a lot of things happen, unfortunately. I know I have a lot of people are like hold their breath during the nine days and they go, oh, no, I hope I'm, I'm under the radar. I don't want any Hashem to notice I'm here. You know, I don't want to go uh, on a boat. I don't want to go this. I don't want to go that. You know, it's, I, I don't believe in that stuff. I mean, you, do, you follow the halacha, what the halacha says not to do. But it's, it, you know, so if, if, you know, every bullet has a name to it. So Hashem decides. Hashem's going to decide what happens. But what you, what you should do is, if, if you're worrying about dying, then make sure that if you are going to die, that you're ready for it. Okay? Make sure you're living before you die. You know, so just in case you don't, so you're ready, you, you got things done before the deadline. It does force you to do things. Yeah. People, this is, the Chavetz Chaim says an interesting psychology. The HR is an interesting psychology. We all know that people die, but that's a different chevro of people. It's not yeah. you. Yeah. The dead people, there's a lot of people die, but that's the dead chevro. I'm part of the living chevro. Ah, you idiot, you're going to be part of the dead chevro sooner or later? I, I don't know about that. And therefore, you always say, I got time. And you hear so many stories about people who are secular. And, I, and people were telling me in their 20s and 30s, yes, I should be more religious. And when we retire, we'll be able to be more religious. The kids aren't in the home. I see they retired. The kids aren't in the home. And they're still not religious. You know, if you don't give yourself deadlines, then you're just not going to get anywhere. So that, and, and certainly in the nine days where everybody's worrying about dying, and you hear stories. Why is it that you... You never, uh, who, who's, did you show it to me? This morning, two Jewish boys and brothers in India 
Uh, they, they went swimming and they drowned. Two, two brothers. Two Jewish brothers. So, like, so, so why did... So, so why does Hashem do that? Only Hashem understands why He does it. But at least one message is, thank God it wasn't me, but if it was, would I have been ready for it? Okay, so then, okay, so now, now that you heard that, so now, okay, so what deadlines? So you have to give yourself deadlines. Deadlines in terms of how much Torah you learn if you're a man, how many mitos you, you develop, how much chesed you do, and give yourself deadlines. There are certain people, great tzaddikim, who said they wouldn't daven, they wouldn't eat breakfast in the morning till they did three acts of chesed. That's it. If I don't do three acts of chesed, I'm not eating breakfast until I do three acts of chesed. And not that it's not that it's not that hard to do chesed. You can do chesed. You have to look for chesed and find opportunities for chesed. So facing your mortality is a very good thing. It's not meant to be morose. But rather, if you know you're going to die, I just don't know when, so of course you want to maximize the time you're alive. That, that would be the natural thing, and, that, and that's a wonderful thing. Okay, number six, on the words, it's on Bain Paran Velavan. Bain Paran Ubain Lavan. I'm sorry, Bain Paran Ubain Tofel. Lavan's the next one, right. So he brings down the Maimer Hasidim from the Chovas Havavas, where he explains the Pasuk, Sahalaso Befanov Vidagaso Belibo, which means a person presents a happy face to all whom he greets, while at the same time he buries his sorrow within his heart. Interesting. In other words, when you see people, you should always smile. Even though inside, your heart is breaking. Okay, and that means, Bain Paran Ubain Tofel. Now, he tells you how the word Paran is, is cognate with Tiferes. Pe'er. So it's like joy. So paralleling the joy in your face, that means Bain Paran. Between the joy in your face, which is a pair, which is the opposite of sadness, and the opposite of that is itzvon alev, sadness of the heart, which is ubein tofel. Shaloya libo arvalov. Your heart isn't so uh, sweet, like something is tofel, missing salt. Yes. Tofel is the vim. The hardest pain is tofel. Okay, and therefore the person should be saddened in his heart. From what? Maybe I haven't served Hashem properly. Maybe I made some mistakes. Maybe there's improvements I should have made that I didn't think about this. And this is the famous word from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was seeing a Jew walking in the street with a very sad face. And Yisrael Salanter turned to the guy and says, you know, the way you feel inside is Rishus HaYachid. It's the private domain. You're not allowed on Shabbos to carry from the private domain to the public domain. On your face is the public domain. You can't carry from the private domain to the public domain. You're you're upset inside? Fine. But on the outside, you should uh, be happy. And more than that is inside, you shouldn't be smug and content. 
Don't be satisfied with what you accomplished. So again, where you're trying to balance two feelings. Outside, you're smiling, you're happy. Baruch Hashem, you're a yid. Baruch Hashem, you've accomplished things. But inside, you got to say, have I really accomplished everything I can accomplish? That is inside for your personal uh, knowledge. But for other people, you have to give people joy. And therefore, this is this balancing the outward joy of life with the internal concerns. And therefore, even during the nine days, you should be happy to the extent that you're an Eved Hashem and you're serving Hashem even during these times and you shouldn't be going around with a frown on your face you should really you should you have to we just say you reduce the simcha it's like when you have a, a, a an, an oven that's on a gas stove so the flame is big so you reduce it a little bit this flame's still there but it's still going. And inside, yes, you really are, are, are disgu- you're really saddened by if I really accomplish what I can accomplish, can I do more? And you have to balance that, but on the outside, you have to appear with a very happy uh, personality. Okay, number seven. She alone, so that was Bain, uh, what did we say? Bain Paran u Bain Tofel. Between a face of, 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 of pleasantness and then of, of heartache inside. Okay, the next one is, that's now Vilavan. Lavan means white. So seven is, You have a pure, clean heart. Like David said, Hashem created me with a pure heart. You should distance from yourself hatred to other people. Vakina and jealousy, vatachris and competition, vahamish, mastemad. It's also a type of hidden hatred. Hidden hatred. Vumasharamas ba'omro vilavan. White means his heart should be white. And always smiling. You show your. And always smiling. And this very much fits the Orachim's commentary in Parshas Vayigash. In Parshas Vayigas, Yosef said to the brothers, Ani Yosef, Haudavichai, etc., etc. And then he, he adds afterwards, Ani Yosef, I am Yosef, your brother who you sold into Egypt. So he says, why does he got to repeat it? They know he's Yosef. Why does he have to say, I am Yosef, the brother that you sold in Egypt? So Lord Chaim says, why does he add that? He's saying that, you know what, I'm Yosef, and even when you sold me to Egypt, I still felt like I was I'm your brother. Still your brother. No, but I not, and I loved you like a brother. Okay. Not that I'm indicting you. How could you sell your brother? But I felt love to you as a brother. Okay. Now and th- and so this I couldn't find a story on uh, the Orachim Hakadosh, but I did find a great story with Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. This is an amazing story. So it's like a story sheer. Okay, anyway. So Reb Levi Yitzchak, we know it's great Sadik, and he had first had certain positions in other cities, and he was one of the earlier Hasidim. And of course, even he was a Tzadik in the Yorishamayim, but Hasidus was really not that popular at that time. So he was he lost positions in certain cities. He finally succeeded when he went to Bardichev. And everybody in Bartichev loved him because his personality and his love and the way he would judge everyone favorably and everyone, they loved him. But of course, there's got to be somebody who hates you. There's got to be one real misnag. As one guy who hated Rav Levi Yitzchak. 
and he wanted to do what he could to really take him down. So, uh, so what happened? So he goes over to the Rebbe, and uh, he, uh, you know, everyone asks for mechila from people, and, and he was a troublemaker for Rebbe Levi Yitzhak. You know, he had done some nasty things, and he never was able to succeed. So now he's going to really be a sneak. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to go over to Rebbe Levi Yitzhak, and he takes a bottle of uh, vodka, which is uh, 96% alcohol. A zexanansiker, they call it in Yiddish. A zexanansiker. A 96er. That is a real... uh, Reeve, what's the highest uh, scotch you've had? 40%. Now, 96, that's like two and a half times a scotch. So, the guy comes to the Rebbe, and Mamish, he's contrite. He says, Rebbe, I'm so sorry. Please be moichel me. I'm moichel you for sure. You know what, Rebbe? Let's drink. Thus being Michael. So he pours for himself and for the Rebbe a good glass of 96%. So the Rebbe drinks it and the other guy takes the glass and, you know, just pours it out. So the Rebbe drinks it, says, you know what? Let's make another one. Let's make another one. Pours him a glass of 96 or Lady just like drinks it. The other guy over the side says, Rebbe, you know, three times is a chazaka. Three times makes it settle. One more lachaim. And so the Rebbe takes a third drink. Okay, now this for sure, he is sure that three good glasses of 96%, it's like 12 shot glasses. The Rebbe is going to be drunk like a skunk on Yom Kippur. And they're going to fire him for sure. So how could the Rebbe, and of course he'll be the guy, he's going to be saying, look at this, this I told you. Terrible. Anyway, I don't know how. <laughs> Rebbe Leviyitza comes to Kol Nidre. He's okay, he's not stumbling. And after davening, and the, the custom there, in some shows, was to say the Tehillim. The whole book of Tehillim after Marv. And Rav Levi Yitzchak was saying the uh, Tehillim out loud, and everybody would answer. And he's saying it with fire, and it's like, you can't until he's drunk. He gets to Kapitel Mem Aleph, and he says, he reads the words, which is first, Bezot Yodati, with this I know, Ki Chafatztabi, that Hashem, you want me. Ki Lo Yoriya Oivi Oloi. Which simply means that my enemies won't be able to hurt you. But he gave his own interpretation. He stopped. He said it. He said the pasuk three times. Because of the And then, and then he explains. He said it in Yiddish, but he says the pasuk means Hashem. How do I know you love me? That you will not hurt the enemy who tried to harm me. The simple meaning is the enemy won't hurt me. If you really love me, you won't hurt the enemy who tried to hurt me. And the guy was in the audience. This got the enemy and he asked him for mechila. 
And he said to him, I never really knew who you were about Rav Levi Yitzchak. Now, of course, we're not going to be like Rav Levi Yitzchak, but at least we should not allow those negative feelings to affect our attitudes towards others. So on day seven, you should think of somebody that you really don't like. Somebody you have a negative attitude towards. And uh, don't drink uh, a non zaxic with the sex and with the guy. But uh, not to hold any of those grudges. You know, the Kutzkarevi said, it's not that I don't want my Hasidim to not sin. I just don't want them to have the time to sin. And, and what this uh, seventh attribute is telling us, don't let our animalistic soul make the decisions for you. Don't, don't hold grudges forever. Or as they say, don't eat poison hoping your enemy will die. Because that's what holding a grudge is, right? So, you know, they say, to be happy, you either have to have a clear conscience or get rid of it. Get rid of your conscience. So... All the politicians do the former, the latter. They get rid of it. They have no conscience. That's all it is. But we should be loving. We should have a conscience. So loving means to live with a clear conscience. Okay, two more to go in nine minutes. Okay, number eight is on the words. What's a chatzer? Okay, so there, what's that talking about? It's talking about Talmud Torah Bikfius, to learn Torah steadily. Yaakov Avinu, like Yaakov, who is called a Yoshev Ohalim, who dwelt in tents where he wasn't learning temporarily. And that's what it means, Chatzeres, because Shesulim Beves Hashem. What's the next word? Shesulim Bechatzros Elokeinu Yafrichu. To be in the courtyard of Hashem. And that's the base medrash. So to be consistently learning. Consistently learning. So that on day eight should be a day that you should be consistently learning that day. Make it ever to learn more. That Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, who was the first rabbi, a really orthodox rabbi in Atlanta in the 1950s. His son, Ilan, is the, is the rabbi now. When he came in the 50s, it was like Yiddishkeit was so backward and so he had to put up, he wrote a number of interesting books, uh, Tales Out of Shul, uh, The Shul Without the Clock, and some of his uh, reminiscences of being a rabbi over all the years. Uh, as a rabbi, I enjoyed reading it. I don't know if you'd enjoy reading it, but it's, it's interesting stories. So in the book, he has one interesting story. Um, so one time, the president, again in the 50s, you have to remember, the president's walking by in the shul, and Rabbi Feldman's by himself. He's in the base matters. And he's by himself. He's learning and he's, you know, steiging and he's you know, this by himself. Next board meeting, the rabbi comes, the president comes and says, I'm really sorry to have to bring this up, but I'm very shocked and surprised. I walked by this week. I see that the rabbi is still learning. But he graduated rabbinical school six years ago. Why is he still learning? So obviously he didn't get the message. We have to always keep learning because when you keep learning, you keep growing. That's, that's a critical point. If you don't keep learning and you learn things you didn't know before, that makes your connection to Hashem that much stronger. And that's the chatzros. That's the chatzros. The chatzer is to be in those chatzeres. And finally, number nine, Vidi Zahav, 
He says, A person should not be engaged in chasing after transient values. Anyone who goes after the lust of his heart, he nullifies himself from serving Hashem. A person should be satisfied with a minimal amount that he needs. And that's what it means, which means in English, it should be enough. That's enough gold. I don't need any more gold. That's what the die, it's enough. Or, he says, anybody should be in his eyes like he has enough, as if he has all the gold in the world. As it says, if you're who's rich, you're happy with what you have. And then you can spend all your time doing your service to HaKadosh Baruch. So we can end with one more story with Reb Chaim, uh, Chaim. So when he was still a student in his grandfather's yeshiva, he learned the skills of a goldsmith, the, the Or Chaim HaKadosh. And he would earn his livelihood without having to make his Torah knowledge to get paid for learning. He didn't want to get paid for learning. He wanted to... So, so when he became famous for his learning and that, he could have had an honored position as a rabbi, Rosh Hashiva. He could have got paid. He didn't want any of that. He wanted to earn his money from the work of his own hands. He was a very skilled goldsmith. Since he was an excellent goldsmith, he could have made tons of money. But he didn't want to... He would only work, make like one piece... That's it. I made my one piece today. I got enough money for it today. I don't have maybe I have enough money for the week already. I don't have to work anymore. As long as he had money in his pocket for his day's needs, he didn't work at all. He spent all his time doing his studies. And he didn't want to be bothered with wealthy wealthy customers. Um, he didn't open his own workshop. He hired himself out to a local non-Jewish goldsmith for a couple hours a day or whenever he needed it. Now, the, 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 the goldsmith was a goy who he worked for, was no friend of the Jews, but he knew that Reb Chaim really did a good job. And he didn't even pay him that much. And Reb Chaim didn't argue about him. He was satisfied with what he gave him. So one time the goldsmith wanted to tempt Reb Chaim by paying him more than before. And, uh, but then he found out and he wasn't tempted. He says, no, I'm not gonna work longer. I'm not interested. Just, you know, and it says, yeah, but uh, you can get, uh, I'm, I'm paying you more than the compare. No, I'm not interested. So come to pass that the sultan was getting ready to marry off his daughter. So he sent from the goldsmith and placed a large order of fancy jewelry to be ready before the wedding. So the goldsmith figures he'll have Reb Chaim at least put in a few hours to make a little bit. But just so happened, Reb Chaim still had some money left over from his previous earnings and he didn't come to the goldsmith to work. And every day the goldsmith figured, he's coming in today, he's coming in today. Anyway, came the day the sultan came and it wasn't ready. Sultan was very angry and he threatened to throw the goldsmith to the lions. Aye, but the sly goldsmith, he put the whole blame on Reb Chaim. He says, it was my Jewish assistant. He let the sultan down because he didn't come. So the sultan ordered that Reb Chaim be thrown to the lions. Now the sultan had a beautiful park right behind the palace, surrounded by high walls, and the sultan kept his man-eating lions and tigers there. 
And anyone who was sentenced to be killed by the sultan, he'd make sure not to feed the ant lions for three days beforehand. And then they would bring, they brought Reb Chaim and they lowered him down and the only thing they let him bring down with him was his talus, tefillin, and his sidur. And they said, what do you need that for? They're going to eat you up before you even touch the ground. So they let him, he's led through the streets and everybody, they're making fun of him. Everybody's weeping bitterly. He's going to die, he's going to die. And the Goyim are insulting him. It's terrible. And uh, Reb Chaim didn't notice the crowd. He just said to them, don't worry, it's Hashem who gives life. It's Hashem who takes away life. He saves people. I'm confident he'll save me from the lion's teeth. So they finally come to the royal palace. He's led behind the gates. They put him into the keepers. They lower down a rope around his waist. They put him down in the den, and he's holding on to his farm. And they all know this from the past. Already any second, blood curling, screams and yelling. Always, this time, very silent. No screams, no wars. And this is a place. And... They kept it for three days. Three days, didn't hear anything. So they say, okay, let's see what's left of him. They come out, they look over the thing, they can't believe their eyes. The rabbi's sitting in the den with his talus and tefillin, studying the holy books, and the lions are just crouched around him silently. They rush to the sultan, and they tell the sultan what's going on. He says, this is incredible. He says, now I know there's a god. And he asked the the uh, Orchim to be his friend and instead they threw the Goyish goldsmith in and had him eaten up. But what do you see? You see from this story Orchim said I don't run after money just enough and Hashem took care of him. Alright so a little different class than usual.